Hello and welcome to episode 99 of the 5 by where five gamers present you with a selection of rapid-fire game reviews. This week, Luke amasses influence in 2012's Edo while I steal as much wealth as possible in Prowler's Passage. Meeple Lady gets to be a kid again, building the best hangout in Fort, while John explores a different type of nostalgia in Jaws, based on Spielberg's classic 70s movie. But first up, here's Christy, talking about working with others while still coming out on top, as she builds in between between two cities. Grab a coffee, sit back, and see if you think one of these games might be worth a closer look. In the midst of an ongoing pandemic, many of us are dreaming of the day when we will once again be able to enjoy casual gaming in larger group settings. Those of us fortunate enough to live in areas where we know some other gamers can get together and take turns playing our favorites. But you also might have laid-back dinner or after-dinner gatherings with one or two people beyond the usual four, and people aren't necessarily looking for a rules-heavy undertaking that will go all night. For situations like these, I like to pull out a tile-laying game called Between Two Cities. Between Two Cities is a drafting game in which you build cities by placing square and rectangular tiles on a 4x4 grid. In many games, such as King Domino or Suburbia, you would build your own city or tableau in front of you. But the twist in between two cities is, wait for it, you build two cities, one with each person sitting next to you. Each city is worth a certain number of points at the end of the game, and the lower of your two scores is your final score, with your higher scoring city as the first in an impressively long series of tiebreakers. Okay, so what sorts of things are you putting in your city? There are six things you can build. Parks, shops, factories, taverns, offices, and houses. These are shown on the tiles with different colors, icons, shapes, and art. Each type of building scores differently, and some have placement requirements in order to score. The parks, for example, will benefit if you put them next to each other. Shops will score the most if you put them in a row or column, and office workers enjoy being next to taverns, so the player aid suggests a checkerboard pattern for those two. There are four different types of taverns, so in addition to putting them next to offices, there's a set collection bit where you're trying to collect unique types. The cities with the most and second most factories earn more points for each of their factories. Finally, the houses score points for each type of building you have anywhere in your city, unless they're next to a factory, since most people generally don't want to live next to a factory. The drafting of the building tiles takes place over three rounds. There are square tiles that each have one individual building type on them, and there are rectangular tiles with two buildings on them. In rounds one and three, you draft the square tiles, and in round two, you do a single draft of rectangular tiles, one for each of your cities. In round two, you're choosing two out of only three tiles, so there isn't a huge amount of choice. I kind of like that because it gives you more of a direction for round three once both you and your partner have added your double tiles from round two. Along the way, the cooperative building of your cities results in these nice little conversations happening all around the table, which is what I like most about Between Two Cities. Everyone is involved and engaged in planning both of their cities. If everyone built their own city in front of them, people would probably call this multiplayer solitaire with drafting, and I have nothing against multiplayer solitaire. But for social occasions with chatty people, this game gives you an opportunity to collaborate on something in a way that feels manageable for a wide range of personality types. 
It's a light game that has a sense of purpose but doesn't require players to be overly competitive. You can even opt for a seating arrangement that balances out different levels of experience or competitiveness among players in your group. Last time I played this with a casual group, everyone demanded to play a second time, which is always a good sign. Another thing I like about Between Two Cities is the player aids and the iconography on the tiles themselves. Reminders of how each building type scores are presented efficiently and clearly so that players don't have to memorize or ask repeatedly how each type works. As a visual learner, I always appreciate player aids and I think these are really well done and easy to follow. The production quality of the game overall is solid. Let's talk about player count. I like Between Two Cities best with six. Five is also good. Once it gets down to four or fewer, I'd rather play something else, but it certainly works. Seven is also possible. It'll just take a little longer on average to sort out scoring, pass out tiles, and so on. In the two-player game, each player builds two cities on their own with no partnerships and twice the number of rounds to compensate. There are two solo modes, the full mode and a simpler mode that makes it faster to get started. Both modes mimic a three-player game, and the full mode uses a deck of cards to guide the other players' decisions. Between Two Cities is designed by Matthew O'Malley, Morton Monrad Peterson, and Ben Rossett. The art is by Beth Sobel, and it is published by Stonemeyer Games. We may have to make do with the smaller player count versions for now, but I'm looking forward to a larger game as soon as the world gets a chance. You can find me on Instagram at d6cmarie. Stay safe and take care. Two games being similar doesn't always mean one is a strict replacement for another. Don't get me wrong, sometimes an iterative design outright replaces its predecessor or, even worse, doesn't change enough to do so. The hobby is rife with a glut of iterative designs, games that make 10 or 15% changes to last year's version and get dumped out on a flooded market, usually in an attempt to capitalize on the short-term hype surrounding names like Rosenberg or Lang. But sometimes an iteration, while on the surface very similar to that which came before, provides a significantly different experience wrapped up in the same framework. Caverna, while largely described as an iteration on Agricola, changes just enough of the formula to be its own thing and to have a place on the shelf alongside its older sibling. Yeddo is another such game. Ask most people familiar with Yeddo for the elevator pitch, and a good chunk of them will trot out Lords of Waterdeep on steroids. And they're not wrong. Designers Thomas Van de Ginst and Wolf Plunk very much took the DNA of Lords of Waterdeep, fed it some anabolics, sent it off to publisher Eggerspiel to get swole, and brought us Lords of Waterdeep's overly excitable, ripped cousin. The description of Yeddo starts with the well-trod worker placement with a twist. Like Lords of Waterdeep, Yeddo's premise is placing workers on action spaces to collect resources, which allow you to complete missions. Yeddo tweaks the formula by making locations matter. And not just the location of one worker, but possibly of your entire stable of workers. The board is divided into seven broad regions. Each mission lists not only resource requirements, but a set of location requirements which must be satisfied by the workers you've placed on the board. For example, if you want to disrupt Daimyo Ishido's marriage, you'll need agents in both the market and temple districts. To steal Royu Fujiwara's katana, however, you'll need to have a presence in both the harbor and red light districts. And to put a twist on the twist, to complete a mission you must activate a worker in one of the required districts, but without activating the action space they occupy. 
So not only are you jockeying for board position for action spaces, but you can use the agents you've assigned for mission completion to block opponents from taking a space they desperately need, then rub it in by pulling that worker without even taking the resources. This mechanism smoothly accomplishes two goals. It ratchets up player interaction by piling on tension in action space selection, and it ladles theme into the game, allowing players to build imaginative stories about their exploits. While there is some flavor text on mission cards, it's mostly innocuous, and the true story comes from the combination of required locations and resources. Let's take the aforementioned stealing of Royu Fujiwara's katana, for example. Agents must be in the harbor and red light districts, and the mission requires a blowgun, a pair of shuko, or hand claws used for fighting and climbing, and a vial of poison. Your ninja assassin will scale the walls of a red light district brothel to catch Fujiwara-san in the throes of purchased passion, take him out with a poison dart, snatch his prized katana, then abscond to a waiting ship with their quarry in hand. For a fairly traditional worker placement euro, Yeto is fantastically thematic supported not only by its gorgeous artwork, but by the sheer volume of thought and care put into the mission requirements and the way the designers use the flavor text merely to set up the story told by the execution of the actual missions. An auction phase at the beginning of each round has players jockeying for specific resources or extra workers, potentially for cheaper than through the standard actions, adding another layer of player interaction into the mix and further cementing the steroidal embellishment. There are only two real negatives with Yeto. The first are the aesthetics of the actual board. While I appreciate the deep, rich colors and the attempt to incorporate the actual layout of the city, the board design results in a busy, indistinguishable mess. The second is something I actually consider a design flaw in just about every game in which it appears, an event deck. Each round, an event card is drawn to affect the overall game's state, including the laziest and most punitive effect in worker placement, blocking spaces. You might plan for multiple turns to complete a complex mission, then an event card blocks a district you need and you're just flat screwed. And if this happens in the last turn or two of the game, it can be completely devastating. The deck is easy to prune or outright remove, and with the release of the Deluxe Master Set, publisher NSKN Games created several themed arrangements of event cards so you can tailor it to your tastes. Despite those minor gripes, Yeto took the formula of one of the hobby's most successful entry-level worker placement games and upped the ante, adding layers of interaction and strategy that serve to create a richer, deeper, and more interactive experience than its predecessor without outright replacing it. I still have both games in my library because, while they may share the same DNA, at the end of the day they're unique experiences. I've never been able to tell whether Yeto suffers or soars from comparison to Lords of Waterdeep, but it's an underrated gem and one of my favorite worker placement games. My name is Luke, and you can find me customizing my games on BGG and Instagram at PixelArtMeeple, or on my website PixelArtMeeple.com. Thanks for listening, and happy gaming! There was probably something in the water when Jaws was released 45 years ago. Something that sparked the birth of the summer blockbuster. I didn't catch the film in the theaters, but Jaws stalked me in the video rental aisles and on TV as highly promoted reruns. I caught glimpses of the movie here and there growing up. It was always a movie in my periphery, but I never really sat down to watch it all at once. It wasn't until maybe the beginning of the 2000s, nearly 25 years after the film was released, that I actually saw it from beginning to end. Recently, Ravensburger has been tapping into film and TV license for the 70s and 80s to create some interesting games that appeal to board gamers' nostalgia of the eras. 
Ravensburger's game based on the hit film is a game of hidden movement for two to three players. One player takes on the role of the shark while the other player or players are the three main characters from the film, Quint, Brody, and Hooper. There are two parts to the game, which you can play separately if you like. In the first act, the crew players search for the titular shark along the coast of Amity Island. The shark player keeps track of their own movements via the provided sheets and spends most of its time avoiding the barrels that the crew member players launch in their attempt to boop the shark player. The human players run around the board, moving barrels around while trying to save swimmers from the shark. I really enjoy the hidden movement aspect of the first act. Moving around the board, unseen, gobbling up swimmers and listening to the human players discuss where you might be or what you might be planning appeals to me in Jaws in a way in which it does not in other hidden movement games. Maybe it's because the rules are so clean and minimal. I do love that the shark gets four power tokens that enable it to take better actions, and as a shark you don't have to reveal which one you've just used, leaving your table mates to wonder if you use the speed boost token to zip around the board, or maybe you use the out of sight token and are no longer visible to Hooper's fish finder. Each of the three human characters, Quint, Brody, and Hooper, have their own powers and abilities which kinda guides players to work together. Hooper can move faster than Quint around the board and collects barrels, but only Quint can launch them at the shark. Brody, Amity Island's chief of police, is landlocked and has to stay on the island, but is able to spot the shark if it's at one of the island's four beaches. The designers from Prospero Hall did a great job varying what the three human characters can do without making them too different from one another, which is a great way to make the game accessible to fresh meat. I mean, new players. Once the human players have tagged the shark with two barrels, the game moves on to the second act. The human players are now on Quint's boat, trying to anticipate which one of the eight sections of the boat the shark will attack during the current round. The game gets pretty clever here with a card deck that limits where the shark can emerge and what level of defense it gets. Three cards are flipped over and the shark player secretly chooses one of the locations as well as one of their own shark ability cards. The human players then discuss and plan their own attack, choosing from the three potential areas on the board where the shark might emerge. They also select a weapon from their available gear cards. Combat is then resolved with the human players attacking first. This part of the game is also driven by tension. Where will the shark emerge? What weapons will the human players use against the shark? It feels a lot like the movie's final act in which the shark attacks the orca and its crew. Just like in the movie, the human players are trying to kill the defenseless shark, and the shark player is trying to protect itself and win the game by destroying the boat or making a mid-afternoon snack out of Quint, Brody, and Hooper. There's a bit of luck involved here because of the attack dice. Some rounds might end up with neither the human players or the shark player getting closer to their respective goals. So if you're looking for some super technical shark hunting simulator, Jaws ain't it. What Jaws is, though, is a fun game designed to capture the feeling of tension and action of the source material as well as the camaraderie between the film's protagonist. The second act of the game can sometimes feel a bit one-sided, especially if one team does poorly during the first act of the game. If the shark ends up eating the 9 swimmers it needs to end the first act, they get a whopping 10 shark ability cards for the second act, while the human players only receive 3 gear cards. So if either team has a bad first act, they're likely to have a bad second act as well. I will say this though, most games of Jaws that I've played went fine and no one walked away feeling like they had been steamrolled. I also really like that they created art for the game instead of using stills from the movie. It's a nice touch that makes me feel more effort went into the production than if they had pasted on stills from the movie. So yeah, check out Jaws from Ravensburger if any of what I said sounds interesting to you. And don't worry if your current gaming situation limits you to two players. I actually prefer the game at two players, since it does away with that playing by committee feel that can creep into most cooperative games. 
For the 5 by, I'm John Gonzalez. Find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Twitch as Book of Nerds. Thanks for listening. Hello, 5 by listeners, it's Ruth here. I have a shelf set out specifically for my two-player games, and you'll find various previous podcast subjects living there, including The Lost Expedition from episode 23, Spirits of the Wild from episode 44, and of course, episode 53's Patchwork. Nestled among these games is the 2018 J. Alex Cavern title Prowler's Passage. Released by Renegade Game Studios, this two-player game pits rival thieves against one another, as they use networks of tunnels to steal wealth from beneath the noses of city guards. The city in question is made up of six randomly arranged textiles placed beneath a track that will record the influence each thief exerts over various districts. Each hex represents three different types of district, and the corner of these form circular intersections upon which are placed statues, while random objects are placed along the pathways that connect them. Setup finishes with the selection of random achievement cards, and then, once the start player is determined, the second player gets to select one district type in which to gain a point of control. On a player's turn, they'll place a passage piece onto the map, collecting the object tile from the space, and moving the control markers that match the district types on either side of their placed passageway. If the item collected was a shovel tile, they'll get to move more spaces on the track, while the other four object types earn the player wealth during scoring. If the placed passageway also caused a statue to be fully surrounded, then the player gets to add it to their hall. Finally, they'll check to see if they've managed to claim an achievement card by completing its objective, and players will alternate turns in this way until mid-game scoring is triggered, either by two of the four statues being taken, or by each player being left with just five passage pieces. Players gain points, or wealth, for their longest continuous passageway's length, for their statues and collected objects, and then look to see which districts they currently control. Each district scores in a different way, but only for its controlling player. For example, the yellow banking district provides 5 wealth, plus another 1 per yellow item collected, while the brown residential district provides wealth for brown items, plus bonus wealth depending on the length of their passageways. After scoring, play will continue until all passageways have been placed, and endgame scoring is almost identical to the mid-game, except players also earn points for those achievement cards that they were able to collect during the game. I really like the setup of the control track for its ease of use. The markers start in the center, moving back and forth as players earn influence and move them towards their own side. So you can easily glance at it and see which districts are currently under your control and by how much. This leads to the decision to pull one as far as possible to make it hard to be pulled back, versus trying to get as many markers as possible over the line in order to score more districts. Each district scoring usually involves gaining wealth for the corresponding color of object tile, so if you have a lot of one type, that district can be especially valuable for you to focus on. What this means is you often find yourself choosing between placing a passage to earn influence in the district that's going to score well for you, versus placing it in a location that will give you an object that matches the districts you have control of, since the random object tiles rarely seem to have come out in such a way as to let you achieve both results at once. There really is a ton of variability in the setup of Prowler's Passage. Players use 6 of 10 possible map hexes, placing them randomly. Only 3 of 15 achievement cards are used, and the object tiles are double-sided. So not only are they randomly placed, but the side showing is also random. So you can't have a set strategy for the game due to the changing nature of the map. But once a particular game starts, there's no more randomness, and the only things a player has to contend with are the actions taken by their opponent, making this game purely about how the two thieves approach their knight.
It's a lovely little 25-minute game that's fairly portable for playing in public once we're able to do so again. That being said, you'll want to find somewhere with really good lighting. The district types are distinguished by both color and art, but it's not necessarily easy to distinguish them in practice. I find myself mixing them up a lot, which leads to a good amount of double-checking the roof lines of the depicted buildings to see which district I'm actually looking at. Color issues aside, the rest of the production is lovely, with shaped wooden pieces for the control marker statues and passages, and nice thick tiles and object tokens that should hold up to repeated play, though I will say those passageway pieces are a little delicate and thin. Prowler's Passage also comes with an included score pad, pencil, and nice reference cards to make the whole experience of scoring smooth and enjoyable. In this time of plague and upheaval, I don't always have the mental processing power for long, complex gaming sessions, and so I'm finding myself gravitating towards those games that offer an interesting amount of decision-making and figuring out the best moves, but in a much smaller time frame. This means that games like Prowler's Passage have been a joy to pull from the shelf. It's an enjoyably puzzly way to pit your wits against an opponent, and it plays so quickly that you can always mix it all up, reset the game, and play a rematch if things don't work out as you've hoped. Give it a try, and let me know what you think of this gem. You can find me on Twitter, at Ruth, that's an R, four O's, and an F. Thanks for listening. Here we are, November 2020, also known as the longest decade ever. And it's times like these when I get nostalgic for a much simpler time. A time when kids could actually go over to their friends' houses and play in their yard. A time when pizzas and toys rocked and forts ruled. Fort, published by Leader Games, who sent me this review copy, is a game that harkens back to that time. It's a unique deck builder, all about making friends and keeping them and building forts, all complete with endearing artwork. It plays two to four players in about 20 to 40 minutes. Fort is a republishing of designer Grant Rodiak's game, SPQF, from 2018, and it's now set in the whimsical and enchanting world of leader games, with artwork designed by artist Kyle Farron. The game box is compact, but it has a lot of neat components in it. The player boards are made of thick cardboard and have cutouts to place your pizza, toy, and fort tokens in. I love it when boards do this as it eliminates the accidental swipe of pieces with certain body parts. The playing cards are glossy, sturdy, and colorful, and just a delight to hold in your hand. The game also includes made-up rule cards and perk cards, which are endgame points you can score and abilities you can gain. And while they're smaller in size, they're also made up of the same cardstock material. Lastly, there's a large thick scoreboard to keep in the middle of the table. It also marks where the park sits for the game. Most of the cards feature adorable children, literally in all types and colors, drawn in the likeness of familiar personalities from our own childhoods. I mean, who doesn't want to play with Puddin? She seems so sassy. So back to the game. On your turn, you play one card, and sometimes you can add extra cards of the same suit to improve some actions. The one card you played has a public action, which allows other players to follow, and a private action, which is something only that you can do. Actions on the card range from gaining resources to put into your stuff or in your pack, both actual locations on the player boards. You can also add cards to your lookout, recruit friends, or upgrade your fort. The amount of items that can sit in your lookout or pack depends on the size of your fort. The goal of the game is to upgrade your fort to a level 5, and you'll have to spend resources to do so, as well as play the upgrade action from one of your cards. 
the private or public action can be played in any order, and then afterwards, players can follow your public action if they spend a card matching the suit of the active card played. Once that's done, the active player recruits a kid card from the park, which always has three cards face up in it, or from their own yard, or from an opponent's yard. Then, all your play cards and your best friends, which are the kid cards with stars on them, that are your starting cards at the beginning of the game, go into your discard pile. The remaining unplayed cards are then placed in your yard at the top of your player board, putting them in danger of potentially being recruited by other players. If you're not playing with your friends by actively playing their cards, they will seek out other friends. There's something a little heartbreaking about the Rocket Brothers being taken by your opponent, but sometimes that's how life goes. The hand management mechanism of Fort elevates this game from your standard deck builder. Lastly, you draw five cards from your deck. If you can't draw five cards, you shuffle your discard pile to make a new draw deck. When it's your turn again, you first clear out your yard. That is, if your kid cards have not been taken by others in between your turn, and you place them into your discard pile. The game ends when a player reaches 25 points, or when a player's fort reaches level 5, or when the park deck is empty. I love the mechanism of following the leader's action. It allows you to take extra actions when it's not your turn, while reducing the amount of cards that will be left over in your yard at the end of your turn. You do not want your friends to be recruited away. I love the re-theme and update to it, and I think many others will too. And even though I've only had the chance to play this game as a two-player many times, the game still had plenty of memorable follow actions. I can see how adding more players will increase replayability and fun tenfold. And for unlike other deck builders, keeps all players engaged all the time because of the follow action. Because isn't life great when you have a lot of friends who want to come over and play? And that's Fort. This is Meeple Lady for the 5 by. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as Meeple Lady, or on my website, BoardGameMeepleLady.com. Thanks for listening. Bye! Thanks for listening to the 5 by. Follow us on Twitter at 5 by Games. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash 5 by Games. Join our BGG Guild, number 2810. Listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play, or check out our website, 5bygames.com. If you like what you hear on the 5 by and want to support our work, visit patreon.com slash 5 by Games. Thank you. Thank you.